0: Simon Freeman, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you for having me, Mario. I'm very excited to talk to you because we're going to touch on some topics that I haven't really covered with many of my other guests to this point. But you are the co-founder, along with your wife, Julie, of Like the Wind Magazine, which is based in the UK. You also run a digital marketing agency called... FreeStack, stack. Uh, but I yeah. want to touch on the magazine side of things. You launched it in 2014. So we're going on four years now. Uh, and you decided to launch with a print magazine. And I'm curious, what was the impetus behind that decision?
1: Um, I mean, the, thing, well, so the, the idea for the magazine, or the, or the question really that we wanted to answer came up while we were running, my wife and I were running around the Mont Blanc, around the UTMB the ultra trail, the Mont Blanc route, um, we were staying in some mountain huts mountain refuges on the way. And we were talking about the fact that there were these beautiful magazines that I was kind of obsessively buying cycling and surfing and skating and climbing magazines, despite not doing really any of those things. I was just an out and out runner. Um, but I just loved the idea of this sort of whole storytelling on paper uh, almost like slow journalism. And we thought we were just wondering whether there would be an appetite for a magazine like that in the running sector. Um, so we came back and Julie downloaded the free trial of InDesign and learned how to use it, um, which gave us 30 days to put an edition together before we had to commit to buying InDesign. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just it was just a sort of a curiosity, really. I wonder whether other people would be interested in the kind of magazine that we would like to read
0: about running. Um, so that was, uh, yeah, that was it. And I've always wondered, what's behind the name, Like the Wind? Well,
1: <laughs> so Julie's the creative person behind the magazine, um, and we, we wanted something that was evocative. Um, we probably... Probably thought that we should not call it anything, should not have the word running in it, just to try and be a little bit different. Um, and it was literally, Judy just said, what about like the wind? You know, you run like the wind. And as soon as she said it, we thought that's it. That's it. it we, we want the whole magazine to be something that makes people think a little bit about running. So the title, again, it's very interesting. Sometimes people will meet people and they'll say, oh, I love your magazine, Run Like the Wind. Uh, and it always sort of slightly strikes me that that they have got the title of the magazine wrong. Um, but it's fine. But it's that sort of, yeah, that sense of kind of making people think uh, about an aspect of running rather than it just being very obvious what it is.
0: Yeah, and um, I can appreciate that. But it has, has that been a challenge for you guys from an identity standpoint for folks who have never heard of it before?
1: Well, yeah. So it's really, we are not... Um, one of the things we sort of wrestled with a little bit is is that, you know, the, the the cover is not always obvious. So it's not always obvious that it's a running magazine from the cover. or It would take you a few moments to look at it to see that it's a running magazine. But actually, um, it hasn't presented a problem because we don't really sell many copies on the newsstand. Um, we tend to find that running specialty retailers are slow to take it up because it's not great margin. It's not really their core business. and um kind of magazine specialty retailers uh shops uh, they probably think running's a bit niche it's not fashion it's not interiors it's you know so they're to so this they're, they're they're also not particularly enthusiastic so actually you know ninety percent of the copies we sell are sold direct people buy a subscription or a single copy uh, so a lot of it is word of mouth um and and you know thankfully now we're building up a bit of momentum after four years um People are telling other people about it, and then when they get a copy in their hand, it's so obvious what it is uh, that that they sort of continue um, buying copies. So um, yeah, we haven't had to worry about that that sort of aspect of of selling it to people that that don't know what it is. Um, I guess it just means that that our growth trajectory has been much steadier than perhaps a traditional a publisher would have wanted. But then we're not publishers, so we don't really mind.
0: Uh, with the subscription model, have you noticed over the past few years that many of your subscribers stay subscribers for a long time once they get that initial issue and they realize that this is something they look forward to receiving a few times yeah. a year and keeping on their coffee table or on their bookshelf or wherever it may be?
1: Yeah. And do you know what the crazy thing is? And, and and you know, we are not publishers, so we didn't, we really, uh, this has been a journey of of discovery. Um when we first started offering subscriptions, we were selling a, like a four-issue package, like one year, but there was no like automatic renewal or anything like that. It was just you, you just you bought four issues. We sent you four issues, and then at the end of that four issues, we then sort of email and say, "Hey, your subscription's about to expire. Do You want to buy another one?"
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A- and we were blown away by the number of people that actually went to the effort of of resubscribing. Whereas, you know, a proper a proper publisher. Would make sure they get people on a on a rolling subscription so that they don't uh, so that when the subscription well, it never lapses unless somebody says I don't want this anymore. Um, so I think that's been really testament to the fact that people are, are hugely committed to the mag, um, which is great. You know, they people feel ownership of it, which um, which is fantastic. You know, it feels like it's something that's that we've put out into the world, but now people are really yeah they feel ownership of it, which um, which is very heartwarming.
0: I want to go back to the origins and the inspiration behind it. And you had just touched on this um, about your own just interests in, in magazines and appreciating the production quality of some of these cycling magazines and such that you were you know, that you've been consuming for quite a while. I mean, like The Wind itself, it's a beautiful magazine. The design is incredible. The photography and the artwork are outstanding. The paper stock is super high quality. It reminds me a lot of a lot of surfing magazines that I see here in California or cycling journals that are just so well produced. What were some of the specific or what are some of the specific publications that you aspired to emulate when you were creating Like The Wind?
1: Um, there's a couple in the uk one one now sadly uh, stopped two cycling magazines one was called the ride journal um they did 10 issues we got to know the guys there really well they were super lovely very helpful they got to 10 issues and said we're done and they stopped um they stopped publishing uh, which was a real loss actually and then the other cycling magazine is called ruler um they're on like i don't know They must be on issue like 70 or 80 by now they've been going they do 10 10 editions a year it's a gorgeous Um, magazine yeah it really is i mean they're they're much more um narrowly focused than us it's not a general cycling magazine it's specifically about the sport of road racing in cycling um but you know from the point of view of big features and you know really allowing the story to to be expressed through pages and pages and pages there they were definitely two that we looked at um one that, uh, another magazine that I really like um mainly from the editorial point of view is Huck, which is kind of a skate punk l- magazine um and and what I like about that is that they uh they have a real kind of point of view there's a there's an there's an aspect of it being a kind of a campaigning magazine they 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 deal with issues um and I think that's something we'd love to to sort of um, potentially move. Move sort of more towards with the
0: magazine um, let's dig into the focus of like the wind a little bit. What I like about the magazine is that you're not restricting it to any one segment of the running population, meaning there are stories in there about trail running, ultras, marathons, tracks, roads, you name it whatever is whatever is interesting in the the running space you seem to be covering in like the wind, which is an approach you know, I try to take with the morning shakeout as well and not yeah. limit myself to any one yeah. segment of the popla- population. Was that a deliberate decision from the beginning? And have you heard any feedback from readers who wish that you were a little more focused on one thing?
1: Um, it, Very, very deliberate. We really wanted it to to cover all aspects of running. One of my big frustrations that I constantly try to 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 address is that we don't have enough short track stuff. We've We've had like in the in the in the 15 editions that we've published, I think we've had two pieces about uh, sprinters and both of them were written by me. And I really had to try and drive it to to make that to make those possible. Um, I, you know, and it's funny, we had we had some feedback fairly, fairly early on with the magazine where people sort of said, oh, you know. Have you seen the great new trail running magazine, Like the Wind? And I was like, no, that's not, no, we're a running magazine. It's like all aspects. Um, none of our readers have said, you know what, you should focus. You should you should just focus on, on, on one thing because I think that the themes that people explore in the pieces that they write, they contribute to the magazine, are universal um, very often. So it doesn't matter that somebody is talking about mental health in the context of being an ultra runner, because it probably relates to people that are dealing with their own demons by going out and doing 5k runs at the weekend. It's kind of, uh, you know, um, but yeah, we, we, we actually work really hard. It's one of the aspects of the magazine that probably, I mean, maybe people do realize, but perhaps they don't realize the extent to which we spend the three months that we're putting each edition together. Um, really thinking about the balance and making sure that there's enough of all the different types of running in there. Um, you know, and, and partly that's because I'm aware of my own um, fallibility because my I love marathon. So my my biography in some of the pieces I've written in the magazine is uh, <laughs> Simon will never be satisfied with his marathon PR, but he's learning to love the trails. Um, and the truth is, I, I still don't love the trails anywhere near as much as I love marathon running, so I, I have to kind of check myself because, um, and that's why it's good that we've got a team. You know, there's there's four people that work on the magazine, and we all have very different views of of, of running. So, you know, it doesn't turn into just a, a, a magazine all about marathon running um, or ultra running or anything else. Um, but yeah. yeah,
0: the other aspect of that is. That you're in the UK, the magazine mm-hmm. was launched there. Your base there. Um, I've read through quite a few issues of like the Wind Now, and I I think you do a a great job of balancing things out and making the content you know sort of accessible to anyone whether they live in the the UK or beyond. But there is definitely a, a slight, I would say, English tilt to it. Um, yeah. How do you how do you strike that balance between? You know, having something that is relatable to your core audience, because I'm assuming a lot of your readers are in the UK or in the Greater London area, versus being able to like expand that out and make it accessible and interesting to runners around the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's another. I think if I'm being completely honest, it's only really in the last three or four editions, so in the last year, that we have sort of acknowledged and accepted that the magazine is something quite special and that people really like it. And that motivates us. Um, and like I say, I'll emphasize when I say us, this, there's, there's four of us really, there's four of us that just put the magazine together. It kind of motivates us to want to make sure that we are creating something that is as broad as possible. Um, you know, right from the outset, like issue one, I sent an email to, the kind of info address at, Dick, at the Dick Beardsley Foundation was like, you know, <laughs> you're a massive hero. I was like, dear sir or madam, um, you know, you're a massive hero. I'd love it if you'd write, write a piece for our magazine. Cause I, cause I'm a, I'm pa- fascinated by that whole era of, of us marathoning when Dick Beardsley and Salazar and all those guys were doing what they were doing. Um, you know, you wrote back, you wrote us a piece. And I was like, this is amazing. Cause we've got a piece from an American, you know, in the magazine, right? Um, but it's undoubtedly tough. You know, and and I think it's. I probably feel now as though it really. This last couple of editions, we've started to um, get some traction. We started to see more pieces being contributed by people from the US, and that's probably thanks to the efforts that we're making with our social channels. And obviously, if more people from the US and Australia, New Zealand. I mean, other places in the world contribute. Um, then we tend to find that we get more readers from those regions. So, therefore, we get more contributions. I mean, it's a it's a, um, a positive cycle. But yeah, undoubtedly, because it because it really was it was really when it started, just me and my wife in the spare room at night in the, during the weekends. Um, it undoubtedly has a a sort of a flavour of sure. of us. Uh, can't get away from that, I'm afraid.
0: If you wouldn't mind talking about it, what is the breakdown of like the Winds readership in terms of geography?
1: Well, do you know, and, and it's really funny because obviously, the, so literally, when the, when people buy a copy or or, the, or they order a subscription, we literally get a, a notification. So we probably two or three times a week we'll we'll send a, a spreadsheet to the mailing house. Um, so we we see uh, where the where the, where the orders are coming in from. Um, and more, so more and more, we're getting orders from overseas. So now we're currently selling the magazine. We're shipping the magazine to 32 countries around the world. Um, the majority are in the UK and the U S and that's probably, um, you know, got something to do with the UK because we're, we started here, the U S because it's an English language magazine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it's very accessible and I think the U S is going through a running boom. So it probably, we're, we're, sort of somewhat catching a wave. Um, so yeah, the, the vast majority UK, U S, um, and then probably kind of big European markets are the next biggest area for us. Uh, but I'm always thinking, you know, I'm always trying to think about ways in which we could, Potentially, um, you know, reach more people. That's that's the key. It you know, it's funny because literally this weekend uh, at the London Marathon, I bumped into to, to somebody from the US who uh, who had been given a copy of the, of the magazine by someone else, like the three hours before. And when I introduced myself and I said, uh, you know, who I was, this guy said, "Oh, I can't believe I didn't know about this magazine. You know, I'm I'm really annoyed I didn't know about it." And I was like, I said to him, well, "But that's my fault." <laughs> you know, because I'm not doing a good enough job of spreading the word. Um, so we've just got to keep keep plowing the furrow, you know, so uh, keep keep making sure that we're doing everything we can to, to reach out to people and, and, and make them aware of the mag.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's a really interesting time in the running media space right now in general, certainly here in the U.S., but worldwide. I mean, media is changing, I mean, seemingly by the day and where people yeah. are getting their news and their stories and their content for lack of a better term and i mean what's what's really interesting is you have you launched just four years ago in the digital age with a print magazine one of the oldest forms of media that's available but one that we could argue is dying in in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. Uh, and a Mm -hmm. lot of other magazines are are struggling and we see websites uh, and various other platforms coming up, and then and then crashing. I'd love to get your thoughts about the running media landscape in general right now, and what you see from your standpoint as someone who is who is in it.
1: So yeah, okay. So so I think, and this is purely opinion. So I'm sure that there will be people that will totally disagree with this. But I I think that what's happening is is a sort of a polarization. Um, And there's other areas where I think this is happening as well, by the way, not just in publishing. I think there's an opportunity if you go super uh, premium kind of, you know, I mean, like the wind magazine is expensive, like $12 in the US, nine pounds. You know, that's a lot of money for people to commit to, to, you know, ink on paper. Um, I think that the polarisation is between people that are really putting in the effort putting in the grind uh, you know a premium product whether or not that has a price tag um and the very the, at the other polar end the very quick very accessible social media type stuff news feeds um you know and and that's and that's kind of free and it's it takes you seconds to consume it so i would like to think uh, that like the wind sits alongside your podcast at the kind of premium end of stuff. I know how hard you work to, you know, inter- to interview the guests and put this thing together. So it's a, there's a premium element and it requires someone to sit or or go for a run and, and spend 50 minutes or an hour with, with the podcast. Same with the magazine. Sure. And then at the other end, there's the I Run Fars or the, you know, those sorts of um, uh, outlets that are producing kind of immediate, almost new stuff. And I think, if, I think that what's happened in the print industry is that those that are caught in the middle um, are suffering because people either want that quick immediacy. They want to sit on their phone and scroll through a social channel or just get some quick tidbits very immediately. Or there's some people who want to sit down with a 120-page Perfect Bound magazine, you know, coffee table type publication that's cost them 12 quid and savor every word of it and put it on a shelf and keep it. Um, and, and, you know, at, again, at the risk of kind of expressing um, possibly an opinion that people are going to disagree with, I think the same thing, you see the same thing in retail. You know, it's either it's, it's either online and it's about price or it's a premium retail experience where, you know, the retailer is putting on running events and, you know, there's a whole community being built around these sort of the best running outlets, best-running retailers. And and anyone that's sort of sat in the middle is is suffering. That's that's how I I see it.
0: Like the wind has only been in existence for a little over four years now. Do you feel like, or have you felt like at any point that its viability has ever been threatened by other publications that could potentially squash you and, and take your readership? Or have you always felt... Confident in your approach and who you're speaking to and their loyalty to like the wind? So,
1: literally from day one. So, when we launched, so what we wanted to do is we wanted to try and minimize our risk. Julie and I had saved up some money to renovate our flat and we'd had this idea about the magazine. So, we took the money that we'd saved up and we contacted a printer and we said, look, we're going to have 120 pages, or maybe it was 100." Maybe it was less. It was probably a hundred pages, the first edition. And we said, We want it on this sort of paper and you know, this is how much money we've got. How many copies can we have? And uh, the printer said you can have this number of copies. And we were like, cool. We so we spent all of the money. We said we're gonna commit to spending all of the money producing as many copies as we can. So in order to mitigate the risk, we started putting out social content, you know, putting created a created a social channel, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook page to try and get people to buy the magazine, you know, a week or two before we went to print so that we could, you know, so we had a bit of money in the bank before we went to print to try and mitigate our risk. And I got this email um, from, it turns out, from the managing director of the company that publishes Rouleur, the cycling magazine, saying, do you want to meet for a coffee? And I honestly, I thought, well, we haven't even started yet. And I'm going for a meeting with this guy where he's going to tell us that they're going to go into the, running publishing sector and we should just not bother and we should crawl back under our stone um so literally from we hadn't even published an edition um as it turns out um what he wanted to do was offer us any advice that he possibly could which was incredible and he's a great friend yeah really amazing and he's a great friend he's really helped us in so many ways in terms of providing you know practical advice and sort of um you know emotional support is he's, he's a great guy, so that was right right from day one and then I guess we just then continually i guess a bit like running a marathon, right we were just continually looking over our shoulder because we we just couldn't believe that we were doing this thing and other people weren't gonna come along and just you know p- go blast past us and we were just because we were we were faking it we were just these two people in the spare room trying to put this thing together at the weekends and, and in the evenings. Um, but nothing happened, you know, nothing came of, of of, of it. there was no, there didn't appear to be any competition. And then, um, and then Tracksmith started publishing meter. Um, and of course the first, the first edition of meter, not, not issue zero, but, but issue one, um, we, I rushed out to, to get a copy and I was like, wow, this is, this is really good. And it's, and it's exactly in the sort of space that, that we have right. been inhabiting now for, I guess what, by that stage, we've probably done eight or nine issues, maybe maybe yeah, eight, eight issues by the time it came out. Um, but actually, uh, you know, we, we have a great community um, linked to the magazine, and we were almost able to say to people within the community, well, look, um, you know, is it an either or situation? And for most of them, they were like, no, I'm going to consume both. It's, I don't have to make a choice. Um, I think if we got, as, as has happened in the cycling sector, I think if we got to the point where there was a dozen or 15 like the wind type magazines, then people would obviously start to make a choice. Sure. They're not going to buy 15 of these things. It would be crazy. Um, uh, Meters sort of stopped uh, after, I think, probably five editions. My understanding is that that's more of a a pause than a full stop.
0: Um, well, I do know just that the Boston Marathon a couple of weekends ago, they released a special edition of Meter, which went back to the original format, which wasn't that perfect bound, beautiful mm-hmm. book. It was mm-hmm. more of a newspaper type style, but it was just for the Boston Marathon. So, I mean, I've worked with the guys from Tracksmith a bunch. I'm not totally sure where that is is going to go but i know it's not com- it, it doesn't seem to be completely dead yet um and i no, think that's I, okay I, I think there i agree with you i think there's there's you know there is room in this in this running media space for you know a few publications of this sort and i'm surprised that there aren't quite frankly whoa. well well you know and 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 uh, you know i think a degree
1: of paranoia is a good thing i think you know yes. again whether it's whether it's running or business you know you, you it keeps you on your toes um Uh, we julie and i literally couldn't work out why this magazine that we were imagining didn't exist because we didn't think that we could possibly have come up with something you know that no one else had thought of so we just assumed that the reason it it didn't exist is that people had sort of tried it and figured out that it was you know it it would never work and we were we were going to find out ourselves that it wasn't going to work um you know, the reality is that there's been quite a few moments when we thought this is utter madness. Um, you know, I remember one night where I was, uh, it, we were both, we were both working on it. I think it was a Saturday night. We were both working. I was trying to get, get the content in shape. Julie was doing the layouts and we had to go to print. I must've actually, maybe it was a Sunday night. We were going to print the next day. And I eventually about one, one in the morning, I said, look, I'm sorry. I've i've got to go to bed so i went to bed and uh i set my alarm for 5 a.m to give myself like a good four hours uh proofreading the final proofread before we needed to go to print at like nine and when i came down and switched the laptop on to start proofreading i noticed that julie had saved the final version about 10 minutes before i'd got up (laughs) i was like this is nuts like crazy but as I said, I think in the last sort of four to five issues we've 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 kind of hit a bit of form, um, and it feels like it's ga- gaining momentum. So, you know, the hard work is uh, is starting to pay off.
0: I can commiserate with some of that in regard to the morning shakeout. I launched it as a as a side project, and now I've put it out the newsletter anyway, one hundred and twenty eight straight weeks, and the podcast is starting to grow. And really, the origins of it were me saying to myself as someone who who is already working in the running media space you know what do i as someone who is interested in all aspects of the sport the competitive side of it the lifestyle like What do I want to be reading on a weekly basis? And how can I, you know, how can I create that primarily for myself? Because I know if it's something that I'm interested in, and if I can create now the podcast that I want to listen to, I know there are other people out there who feel the same way. And on one hand, I'm surprised that many other people haven't done that yet. And on the other hand, I am just scared shitless that eventually someone's going to come along and make one that's. You know, make something that's better than what I'm making, um, and and put me out, which I think is healthy. I, I think that fear is is healthy, and I, you know, not that I'm trying to compete with anyone, but I think that's going to help improve the quality of my own publication. And if it means there are other quality running publications or podcasts out there for people to listen to, it's better. You know, it's better for everyone. So I think that I think that fear, that madness that you described, is a uh, you know can ultimately be. You know, it's stressful, sure, and it can certainly keep you up at night, but I think it can also be, you know, a healthy stimulus for creating an excellent product.
1: Well, you know what, and I think it, if this could come across as, as as being very self-congratulatory, but the reality is, you know, hard work pays off and, right. you know, sometimes people, I, I know that sometimes people look at the mag and they think, oh, yeah, I wish I'd, wish I'd thought of that. But it's, it's what you don't see in the background. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, it's like the edition comes out and it feels like crossing the finish line, arms held up, you know, we've, we've, to use running parlance, you know, we've smashed it. But it's, it's all the stuff that's gone on, it, you know, the, 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 the days and weeks and months of, of, of kind of, you know, doubt and, and just working bloody hard um, to get to that point where you do get to stand around and say, yeah, look, we just put out another edition of this beautiful mag um and not just us you know all of the contributors and the other people that have input into it uh, exactly the same as the podcast you know i i love listening i <laughs> i just got myself a set of bluetooth headphones um for the first time a few, couple of or just maybe even just a week or so ago game changers and i was out listening to the podcast to your podcast while i was away uh, on a business trip the last couple of days and i just I was really enjoying listening to the podcast but in the back of my mind I was constantly thinking I bet this is really hard work <laughs> it sounds so effortless but I know that you're, you you got to you got to kind of work at work at it to make it um
0: Well no it, it is lot. I mean it's no different than just using the analogy of of running you watch Elliot Kipchoge run the London marathon and he makes it look so easy, right? I mean, even when he was running two hours and 25 seconds, he makes it look so easy. But if you look back at the months and years and workouts leading up to that, I mean, he's just grinding away and it's, it was never that, you know, it's never that easy. And I think, you know, I think that's evident in all aspects of life. I mean, I know in, in my case, there's a quote that I really take to heart. It's um, easy Easy reading is damn hard writing, and I think that really sums up, at least in my specific case, the newsletter every week. I mean, yeah. getting yeah. it out—you know—I take great pride in getting it out every Tuesday morning. But and people are, you know, they're they love having it in their inbox, and that means the world to me. Um, but there are more weeks than I care to count where I'm literally up till two thirty in the morning. Uh, mm-hmm. putting the finishing touches on that thing so that when you get it in your inbox, it's a really, you know, it's a pleasant experience. And I wouldn't trade that yeah. for the world. I mean, I think the, you know, the struggle sometimes is, is worth it, but yeah, it is, it is interesting sometimes to peek, kind of peek behind the scenes and see what goes into things. And, you know, the finished products comes across a certain way, but, you know, you don't always see the, the work that goes into that. I mean, so I, you know, I appreciate that as someone who, does something very similar and can understand the, the amount of work that goes into these things that we produce here. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I want to talk about is your day job, because Like the Wind is not your full-time job. It's a, it, it, it is a full-time job, I think, in terms of the amount of work that you put into it, but it's not the only thing that you're doing. You and your wife, Julie, run FreeStack, which, yeah. correct me if my category is wrong. Is it is a digital marketing agency of sorts? Um, how have the skills that you apply to FreeStack helped you grow like the wind and informed you um, on your path with it?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. You know, there's a, there's a, a a story. I can barely remember the story, but it's but the but the sort of the headline to the story was that in any aspect of what you're doing in business, you have to eat your own dog food. Um, and so we, so Freestack is a business that helps brands in the running cycling outdoors sectors connect with, uh, consumers through the medium of working with influencers and content creators. Um, so it's a, so it's a marketing business and we, (laughs) I have to remind myself, you know, sometimes that if there's any aspect of like the wind magazine you know we're not selling enough copies i I feel like we're not getting penetration for example into the u.s market that i want us to be Um, i have got no excuse we do run a marketing business you know i've got to eat my own dog food actually you know knuckle down and do the work um the work required to 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 sort of make the magazine more um more visible uh, in our target markets um but actually they're very different businesses so one is purely digital. Um and I think almost the magazine is kind of a reaction to that. It's the fact that the magazine is 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 ink on paper. Um, you know, I love the fact that once a quarter we get I don't know however many, hundred hundred, hundred and fifty copies delivered to the office um for our own use and they smell of ink and glue and they weigh the boxes, they weigh thirty kilos, you know, they're big boxes full of paper. Um I do like that as a juxtaposition to, to what we do in the day job, which is, um, uh, you know, creating digital connections, which is amazing, and I love it, um, but I'm really pleased that we have both things in our lives,
0: yeah. I think to have that physical product and hold it in your hands, and as you said, smell it and kind of experience it, and and in your case, realize all the work that went into it, and to actually see it in front of you. I remember when I published my book in 2013, getting that first copy was mm. was a pretty amazing experience to think back to all the late nights and uh frustrating moments that went into that book and be like wow this thing looks beautiful um yeah. and it's and it smells like a book and it's got all these great photos <laughs> in it and um you know yeah there's there is something to that um did especially you, in this you... digital world that we that we live in where we still produce things but you see it on a screen and it's just it's just not the same feeling yeah,
1: yeah. no no completely did you when you'd got your first book did you um did you basically do yourself an injury by never leaving the house without two or three copies in your backpack?
0: For a while, yeah, or in yeah, in the <laughs> back uh in the trunk of my car. Um I was traveling a lot at the time and going to a lot of events to to promote it. So yeah, I always had a few copies on me that I could I could seed people with and you know, yeah. let them let them see what it is that that yeah. I made in the hope that they would tell other people about it. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, and and the other thing I you know, the other aspect to the magazine that I like, which again is It's slightly different to the marketing agency is i quite like in a perverse way the challenge of pressing the go button pressing the print button i mean you do it every tuesday you you press send and you send all these emails out to i guess tens or not hundreds of thousands
0: of subscribers to the to the to the newsletter not quite but I, but eventually hopefully we'll get there get it. it's a, yeah it's about 6500 at this point but i'm very, yeah. i'm very proud of that and that's a, a
1: lot of people you know when you when you mentioned like the wind magazine the first time in the newsletter i was inundated by the way with messages from people going ah, you're on the morning shakeout newsletter do you know that and i was like well of course because i'm a subscriber but I, you know it's got real reach these are friends of mine that i go running with week in week out in london that are all subscribers to your to your newsletter And there's that aspect of you know, pressing the send button, right committing something.
0: Well I think Um, in both our cases as as independent publishers who don't have, you know, it's not my desire to have a huge audience. I want a very engaged audience. And I think Mm. you're in the same boat with like the win the people who are buying your magazine or the people who are willingly putting their email address into the subscribe field on my website, they want this content uh, and they, Mm. you know, they find it valuable and they want to be engaged with it. And I think there's, you know, I think there's something really special about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? It is. Um, Back to your magazine and the stories that make it up. Where are you getting most of them from now? And I'm sure that's evolved since mm-hmm. issue one. How many of your features are assigned versus submitted? And how do you decide what ultimately ends up in the magazine?
1: So um, you're you're absolutely right. So the first edition, my name appears in the byline like way too many times because I, I was basically writing it or I was soliciting um uh, contributions like emailing, you know, Dick Beardsley. Um, now we have way more contributions than we could possibly publish. Um, so we have the very difficult job of figuring out what what we want to put in and and, and, and what we can't. Um, and as the magazine has evolved, again with with Alex, who's the designer, and Imogen, who's the deputy editor, alongside myself and Julie. We've really started to sort of hone in a little bit on wanting to have features as well as put people's personal stories. Um, so that, yeah, that's been a, been a really interesting aspect, and it, and it allows those features allow us to drive the magazine a little bit. So I mentioned to you um, about track running. Like, I really wanted to have some some. I still want to have stuff in there about people that are running. 100 200 meters 400 800 hurdlers i want those stories because they're running stories um but we don't get contribution so what we do then is say okay so then i now i'm going to write a feature or we we'll, or we'll find a writer and, and ask them if they can write a feature um about a subject that we feel is not being covered in the magazine um and it also allows us to 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 kind of have lots of or have to have lots to have some historical pieces in the mag um which again people are writing personal anecdotes which are a really key part cornerstone of the magazine but i also want uh you know a piece about zatepec or um you know i think for the next edition um in a in my own way i'd quite like to revisit uh the first sub four minute mile now that um that, that all of the protagonists or the three Brits that were involved in that record have, have all now passed away. I thought, well, you know, that's that's a good thing to revisit in a slow, in a slow journalism kind of way. You know, the the, the news um, uh, that, that they've all now passed away is 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 old news, but I will do it in our way. Um, so we're, we're getting, I think, we're getting the balance right. Honestly, um, we would like more features, but. Um, you know, financially, it's quite difficult because, you know, obviously, journalists need to be paid. So um, until the magazine is kind of on an even more, um, you know, know, more resilient footing, we we, um, we have to just kind of limit the amount of stuff that we can
0: pay for. A couple things I want to pull out of your answer there. First being, how do you balance the history of this great sport of running which goes back centuries and Mm. the current culture of I hesitate to say that the sport of of running because I think it is much more than just a competitive sport but the current culture of running how do you balance Mm. those two things in the content that you produce and how challenging is that to achieve I think if anything we
1: um shy away from talking much about current running culture and the sport as as it as it exists today. Um, it's easier in a way to dig out stories. I I wrote a piece um I, I I worked on a piece with an author who'd written a book about Alan Mimoon. It was amazing. You know, the story of this guy and everything that he'd been through in his life in a sense, it was easier to write that piece because there's a patina around the story, uh, you know, and and it's researched. It's not opinion. It's it's actually what happened. Um, so I, I again, it's another thing that I would I mentioned, you know, about Huck being kind of a campaigning magazine. It campaigns about stuff. Um, I'd like us to move more in that direction where we um, <clears throat> excuse me, where we have an opinion about what's happening currently more so than we currently do um but yeah that's that's sort of something for the future i think
0: and the second thing that i wanted to pull out of your uh, previous answer was the finances of producing and sustaining a a print magazine and Mm -hmm. that involves you know certainly paying your contributors and maybe even yourselves but I know when you talked about this earlier, you and Julie launched like the wind with your own savings that you were going to use to repair your flat. Um, and for the Mm. first few issues, I know you donated whatever profits you made to charities. And for a while, Mm. you didn't have advertisers of any sort. And it was just reliant upon the subscriptions and, and issue sales. How has, you know, how has that evolved? What role does advertising play in the entire operation right now? And how do you and Julie keep this thing going um for the foreseeable future
1: sure well i mean the way that we keep it going is through the through the generosity of people so um uh yeah i might as well say i mean and i don't really earn from the magazine at all um alex and imogen um do but not honestly anything like what they should be earning for the amount of effort they put in and we're very, you know, we have such generous contributors who will send us. Um, I mean, only the other day, a photographer who is probably one of the best in the world uh, just said, look, I've done a photo shoot. It was a bit of a personal project. If you're interested, I'd be honored to see it in the mag. And I'm like, this is this is crazy. You know, it's incredible content that this person's happy for us to use without without us having to, um, you know, pay him. Um you know, and it's funny because at one point we did have a bit of just a couple of people who started getting on their high horse about the fact that we were, you know, undermining journalism by using what they were calling user generated content. And I and I never really saw it as that. i I kind of I've always seen it as people um I think Mayor Angelou said, you know, there's nothing more I'm I'm Paraphrasing, but she said, "You know, it's nothing more painful than carrying a story around that's not told." I think people want to tell their stories, and it's certainly with the personal anecdotes. People are just like, "Well, I'm just really happy to see it in print, and you you treat it with such respect um, that I don't I, I don't need to be paid. I just want to I want I want the story to to sort of be there to to, to be able to share it." Um, we are now working with you know we are having some brands involved and. You know, we see them as partners. Um, again, they, they seem to trust us. So um, they seem to sort of, we will agree a subject for a piece of, for an advertorial. And uh, they just say, great, you, you crack on, you do it in a like the wind way. Um, you know, we trust you. And that helps enormously. But I'm very, I'm very aware of the fact that, especially at the kind of the price of the magazine, if we overstep the mark, and we did too much work with brands. There was too much kind of advertising, advertorials or whatever. We wouldn't actually need to lose too many readers for it to suddenly make no financial sense to have the advertising. That makes, if you see what I mean.
0: No, totally. Um, I mean, I I'm dealing with some of the same challenges myself yeah. with trying to, well, I guess keep keep the morning shakeout going and you know being able to justify to my wife that it's worth the incredible investment of my time that I'm that I'm putting into it at the same time without pissing off readers who you know don't want to be inundated with ads and may or may not be supporting me through something like Patreon um, and just trying to find a you know trying to find a balance where you know I can you know I can keep it sustainable so I I can certainly respect those those challenges
1: I mean I think one of the things that you and I both have, with our with our respective, um, you know, publishing businesses, is the ability to reach out to the people that we're talking to, and say, "Look, what do you think? How does this feel?" So we'll we'll do that all the time, whether that's face to face or you know through our social channels or whatever, um, and and gauge how people are are feeling about it, um, and I think that gives us the opportunity to to, to kind of. Do, do it in a way that people totally respect that for the amount of work we're putting in, then we need to get something out of it. Um, but we, we do it in, in partnership with, a, with a, a real genuine community. Uh, and certainly, you know, certainly if we were selling the magazine, if we were selling most of our copies through the newsstand, we wouldn't have that ability to just directly interface with right. with the people that are buying the magazine. And I guess you've got, you know, you have so many feedback mechanisms through the, through the newsletter and the podcast. Um, that you can you can do the same you can you can kind of say look guys how does this feel is this okay are you happy with this um, just, yeah that's part of the new possibly part of the new new age of publishing right
0: I would agree with that yeah I mean with the newsletter being an email newsletter I mean all someone has to do is hit reply and they can write back to me and share their thoughts and oftentimes mm. I will solicit that when especially when I'm trying something new I'll say hey let me know what you think of this uh, and people are happy to, to let you know what they think. And I, you know, I for one appreciate that, but I think it's important now more so than ever in publishing and certainly as independent creators to have that kind of relationship with your audience where, um, they trust you. They feel like you are listening to their feedback, uh, and can communicate with you. Um, so that, you know, every, I shouldn't say so that everyone's happy. You're never going to make everyone happy. Um, but so that, you know, you can keep the peace at least. Um Yeah, if that makes, absolutely.
1: If and that I think, I, you know, I said this early on and, I'm, and it, um, it's absolutely the case with, with what you publish. People feel ownership. Right. People f- tell me you know, they feel ownership of the magazine. Like, okay, cool. That's good. So I'm not going to do anything to upset those people. But at the same exactly. time, you know, there is a there is a. A, a delicate balance, and I think we're just yes. about walking it at the moment. I don't think there's a problem just now.
0: A little while back, you had mentioned how you're not really covering the current, I guess, culture of running, and I'm I'm paraphrasing that. I can't remember exactly what mm. your words were a few minutes ago. But mm. what what's happening in running right now that is exciting you personally?
1: So. I mean, as I think, as I mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still totally obsessed with the marathon from the day I started running, which was 10 years ago. I'm, I, it's just really got me. Um, and you know, watching Boston, I was glued to it, absolutely glued to it. I, I said to my wife, Oh, Boston marathon. Um, I'm just going to kind of like, just see what's going on. I'm just going to catch 10 minutes. and like." Two hours later,
0: you were sucked I, in. I, I,
1: oh, unbelievable. That race, um, you know, and the whole, I think, especially what's happening with women's marathon running in the U S with Shalane winning New York and then Desi, you know, winning in Boston, it, you know, absolutely incredible. I got to meet, um, some of the guys from, uh, the, uh, Hoka Naz elite team. Um, one of their, one of their runners was over for London. Uh, I, you know, I love all of that stuff. Um, I love, I love the drama of marathons. You know, Callum Hawkins, Scottish runner, who was, uh, you know, two minutes in the lead at the Commonwealth, the Commonwealth Games. Games right. You know, the drama of that, and 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 uh, even not, I guess, not quite so dramatic, but seeing Mo Farah run sixty-one minute first half in London, and then, um, you, you know, run a sixty-five minute second half. Um, you know, in the way that he's talked about it afterwards, about how he's, you know, tr- trying to figure out how to kind of crack the nut of the marathon. I just, I just love all of that. I think that that's, um, it's a fascinating sport. Um, oh, I should probably apologize for the fact that it sounds <laughs> as though the Royal Air Force is just flying over the top overhead. Sorry about that. Um,
0: I scheduled that ahead know. of time.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, Mary Katani, uh, the way she's talking now about still being obsessed about trying to, you know, take, take Paula's world record. I, I love all of that. I love all of that. Um, but that is just, you know, I mean, that's just my personal kind of fascination with the sport. I think there's also so much interesting stuff going on around, you know, um, I would say, uh, the reemergence, almost, of the kind of running crew culture. I think it's it's been through a few ups and downs, and um, I think it's in an up swing. Certainly, what we're seeing in in Europe is really exciting. I know that you would, we were, interviewed Knox on a on a on your last podcast, right? Um, Knox Robinson from Black Roses, and you know what what those guys are doing, I find absolutely fascinating as well. Um, it's much more accessible, something that people can get involved in if they're, if they're interested enough in, in, um, you know, figuring out what running is, what running means to them.
0: Yeah, no, it's something I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm equally fascinated by, uh, which is why I brought Knox on to talk about it. I'd love to just very briefly get your thoughts on the, the run crew culture in London right now and how that's changed in recent years and just what you're seeing from where you sit.
1: Mm. I mean, uh, so I was very lucky. I met a particularly uh, key figure in the scene, a guy called Charlie Dark, at a dinner. We sat next to one another and we were talking about why why we run, which is kind of the tagline of of Like the Wind. And this was way before Like the Wind magazine existed. And I said to Charlie, you know, for me, it's just about curiosity. I've started running and I just want to know with my kind of background as a, you know, Ex smoker and heavy drinker, and what have you, you know, how far, how fast can I go? Um, and Charlie and I become firm friends. So I was involved in Rundem Crew, you know, from a relatively early, um, early stage, I guess. Um, I think it's been through, uh, I think all of the crew, the crew culture has been through some ups and downs. I think there's a lot of brands tried to get involved and possibly not for the most um for the most sort of uh, uh for the best of reasons um but now it feels as though the crews are kind of yeah as i say reemerging like finding their feet again and and working out that actually it's the community of people that's the most important thing um and they're going to continue regardless uh and you know it was at mile 21 for for a portion of the london marathon which is the which is like the cheer zone that the rundim crew have built over the last 4 years um, and it's like a wall of noise it's unbelievable you know i had the i had the um, had the honor of running through it uh, when i set my pr in london and it, it just an absolutely mind-blowing experience just to just to sort of experience you know to be part of that um, so i think i think they're in a really positive space um honestly i think the the crews that are sort of staying true to their to their roots are finding that there's a real um you know a real passion for what they do amongst runners Um, so yeah i'm very excited by it
0: i want to dig into something that you had just said about the brand's involvement with some of these crews and how that may or may not be the best thing but on a you know kind of on a broader level like i want to talk about athletes and Influencers in the running space, like it's really challenging right now for for an athlete, for many athletes, to make a career mm-hmm. for themselves, you know, out of running. But what we're seeing now in this social media explosion that we're in the middle of, we're seeing a lot of running influencers of all sorts popping up all over the place, partnering with brands, and in some cases, making a good living doing it. Um, I'd love to get your perspective as someone who you know, who works in, in this space with FreeStack, um, how yeah. are things evolving in this regard?
1: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure this has come across. I'm really optimistic about, well, pretty much everything I would say. And, um, you know, what I see happening in the, in the, uh, influencer sector is again, a lot, a bit of a polarization. I think there's, there's, I think people are starting to realize that the you know, Instagram celebs who will endorse anything for payment um, aren't really worth the time of day. The people that are putting out really good content, genuine content about something they're super passionate about, and that doesn't have to just be running, of course, it can be in any, you know, in any area of, of life. Those people have got real value. And the ones that are doing it best are figuring out that their value you know, their value comes from their, their connection with their community. Um, and, and I was listening to uh, you know, another of your podcasts where you had a guest who was talking about how, um, you know, how fantastic it is now that we have the opportunity to see kind of a bit behind the scenes with some of the athletes who will post stuff about their off season and that it really humanizes them. Um, I think the best influencers are doing that, they're, they're, they are being really genuine to their audience. Uh, there's, there's a complete lack of cynicism. They are trying to share the story and inspire people for the love of doing that, not to make a buck. And actually, if they stick to that, the brands will then come along and they, and they do have the potential to, um, to, to make a living, possibly, or maybe just make some, some sort of money on the side. Um, but, yeah, I th- I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm optimistic because I see some people doing some great stuff uh, I- I- in that regard.
0: Last question, and we'll wrap things up here, tying it mm-hmm. back to, like the wind, uh, we've talked about its origins and how it's evolved here over the last four years. What does the future hold, both immediate and long-term?
1: Um, so the immediate future is that issue 16 uh print deadline is fast approaching, and I was looking today at the list of outstanding content, and my name is against the most of it. <laughs> so I've got some work to do. Um that that's the that, that, that's the next thing on the horizon, really, is get is get that next edition out. We've got a few kind of brand partnerships that we're working on as well, which is super exciting and will help us to grow the mag. You know, the medium long term is just trying trying to work hard to get the, get the magazine into the hands of people who are going to appreciate it and love it and want to be part of it and consume it. Um, I want to have as few conversations as possible where people say, I love this magazine. Why did I not know about it? That's, that's my kind of long-term goal. And actually, funnily enough, I'm less bothered then whether or not they actually buy the magazine it's more that they're connecting with the stories because um you know every single edition we get content that comes in that is so good i mean i either i'm either holding my sides laughing or literally crying with the pathos of, of the stories that we're sent um those stories need to be told and i and i want to i I want like the wind magazine to be the vehicle that does it so uh the long term aim is just to um to get those stories out to as many people as possible.
0: I love it. I love what you guys are doing. Thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast today to talk about all of these different topics. And before we call it quits on the show, where can my listeners connect with not only you, but like the wind magazine, uh, online and possibly even check out a subscription or just an issue or two.
1: Sure. So the simplest, uh, thing is to, um, is at like the wind mag, uh, on Twitter and Instagram, um, or, uh, the, the website is like the wind com, and they'll find everything on there. Um, and, and, and I just want to say before, before we finally, finally finish, you know, everything you've just said I, back at you because I absolutely love the the, the newsletter and the podcast and I'm. You know, really honored to be part of it, but but, um, I'm sure you don't need me telling you this, but please just just keep going. <laughs> it's great,
0: thank you. I appreciate that, and I certainly will. So appreciate the kind words. Thank you and thank you all for listening to the morning shakeout podcast. If you would, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review for the show. It really helps other listeners to find it. And if you'd like to support The Morning Shakeout directly, you can do so on patreon.com slash themorningshakeout. Thank you to everyone who has contributed thus far. And that's it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening.